Uncle Bill is a devoted believer, uh, and over the years, he would be what you would call a trophy of God's grace. Um, but I remember when we prayed for him every night because he didn't know the Lord, and he was kind of rough around the edges, to say the least. And uh, God brought him through some very deep waters. Uh, it's hard to even talk about the, the painful things that my Uncle Bill had to go through before he came to the Lord. One day he was driving home from work and lived out in the country, actually on the farm where my grandfather bought this farm, and a little boy went out in front of the car and he hit and killed this little boy. And then later uh, in his life, and that sobered my Uncle Bill, everybody could tell that after, after that, um, later my Uncle Bill, his wife Aunt Marlene, she had breast cancer and died, and it was in the church that they would go from time to time, she was a believer, after she died, that he finally came to know the Lord as his Savior, and now he's a real devoted Christian man. Like I said, before he knew the Lord, though, uh, he was rough around the edges. And one incident I remember specifically was a story that he would always tell when we were grilling burgers after baling hay on a summer night. He would, he would tell about how when they bought the farm, there were all kinds of cats all over the farm running around, more cats than anybody ever needed. They had just bred and multiplied, and they were a nuisance. And my, grandpa, my grandfather didn't really know what to do about it, and my Uncle Bill said, There's, this is no problem, I have a twenty two rifle. And so he pulled a twenty two rifle out of the trunk, and he said, just point to the ones you don't want. And so they pointed them out, and they killed the ones they didn't want, a whole bunch of them, and buried them. And they had a good laugh about that, and they had a lot of good laughs about that, because they would repeatedly laugh about that story uh, around the grill. That tells you a little bit about the mentality of my family, I suppose. That was uh, humorous to them. Now, I'm not, I'm not against killing animals. I've, probably you can tell by looking at me, I've eaten my share of meat. Um, I don't eat cats normally. Um, maybe you do. I don't think Bill did either. We laughed about that for a while, but as I got older, I thought, well, it's really not in good taste, and, and it's kind of crude, you know, especially because I do like cats. I mean, really like them. And, uh, and um, it reminded me of uh, the Scripture in the proverb that says something like this. I'm going to paraphrase the proverb there in Proverbs 12, that a, a, a righteous man regards the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. A righteous man is, has a, a sense of sanctity of all kinds of life. But an unrighteous man, even at his best, his tender mercies are cruel. We're talking here really about abortion today, and abortion is a dark business. We're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I felt the Lord has put it on my heart to talk about what I'm going to talk about today. It's not divorced at all from the truth that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see that very clearly in Matthew chapter 5. Abortion is a dark and ugly business. And many people like uh, are impacted by it. As I got older and I thought about uh, that little incident with the cats, I realized that today we live in a time when preborn human beings are dispatched like unwanted pets. And wicked, unprincipled men and women make millions in the dark trade of abortion, which is overtly sexist and racist. Abortion is a dark business. According to the Bible, abortion is murder. I want to make that very clear today. It's a very dark act. It's the worst of things that's imaginable. It's harmful to everyone involved. It damages body, soul, and spirit. Obviously snuffs out the life of a child. And because it violates the law of God in such a flagrant and a violent way, 
It alienates everyone who's involved in it from the living God. He is the one who gives life and breath and all things, according to Acts chapter 17 and verse 25. Satan is this way. God wants to give life and Satan wants to snuff out life wherever he finds it. And abortion is a perfect example of that. God is the giver of life. And Jesus said about Satan that he's a liar and a murderer. He lies and gets people involved in false philosophies or lies so that he can snuff out life. And abortion is a perfect example of that. Jesus said that in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Death and dying are always the result. When false reasonings and false philosophies take root in a society or in a home or in a human heart. Don't, don't ever be deceived. Abortion is his business. And it's a dark business. As a matter of fact, I want to show you today five biblical reasons. This won't be the whole of my message, but the beginning here. Five biblical reasons. First, God created life in the womb in his own image. And we, we refer to these passages in our, in our, in our worship hour already. <clears throat> Psalm 139 and verse 13, you formed my inward parts and covered me in my mother's womb. And Job 31 and verses 13 through 15 say, If I've despised the cause of male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? God created life in the womb in His own image. Second, the Bible refers to babies in the womb the same way the Bible refers to babies outside the womb. Example, Genesis 25 and verse 12. But the children struggled within her. The children struggled within her. She said, if all is well, why am I like this? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 41, it happened, Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The babe leaped in her womb. The Bible refers to the preborn infant baby the same way as the bible refers to the infant who's already born luke 2 and verse 12 this will be assigned to you you will find the babe same word out of the womb is in the womb luke 2 and 16 the same thing came with the haste found mary and joseph and the babe lying in the manger same word as used before the babe this babe was born and and luke 18 and 15 they brought also infants to him that he might touch them same word third reason god wanted his people to understand that he would warn them repeatedly that if they would become like the nations around them, they would shed innocent blood. Let me review these three things. First, God created life in the womb in his own image, according to the Bible. Second, the Bible refers to babies in the womb in the same way as it refers to babies outside the womb. Third, we continually have warnings in the Bible that if we become like the people around us, we adopt the philosophies of the people around us, then what we're going to end up doing is sacrificing our children. This is what the scriptures say in Psalm 106 and verse 38, and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Make no mistake about it. Abortion is a dark business. Abortion is a bloody business. They don't want you to see that, but it is. Fourth reason, according to the Bible, God calls on his people for the protection of the weakest and the most vulnerable members of the community. For instance, Psalm 82 and verses 3 and 4 says, Defend the poor and the fatherless, and do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Christian people, God's people, should have a special concern for the the defenseless, should have a, a special concern for the weak that no one else is defending. If anything describes a preborn baby, it would, be, it would be weak and defenseless. Finally, God alone has the right to give and take life 
according to all of Scripture, but Job 1 in verse 31, and, and he said, Naked I came from the womb. Naked I returned there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's God's business. That's God's business. So abortion, according to the Bible, is clearly, it's murder. It's a dark business. Jesus addresses this very directly. He addresses the murder issue very directly in in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want this to just be kind of settle on your heart for a moment. Godly people should understand this issue. Abortion is a dark business. It's a bloody business. It's a work of darkness. There is no humane way to kill a baby The cold, hard facts about what abortion really is are way too painful for me to describe to you in public. I I thought about it, but I can't bring myself to do it. I have the gift of words to be able to describe to you what happens to babies in abortion. My conscience would certainly allow me to do that. There would be nothing wrong with me doing that. But my personal scruples and my personal sensibilities will not allow me to even explain to you how dark as effective as it might be to explain to you what happens in abortion and give you some graphic detail about that. I can't bring myself to do it today. In the interest of sensibility, can I just suggest to you, abortion is a dark and bloody and deadly business. Though it's shrouded in legal respectability, it's presented publicly as an antiseptic, harmless health procedure. It is neither legal or a health procedure. It's not legal because it violates God's law. It has nothing to do with health at all. The purpose is to dispatch of an innocent human life as quickly and quietly as possible, hide the ugliness of it, and get to the bank with the cash as quickly as possible. And you don't have to go very far in recent news articles to read ugly examples of that. It is a dark business. It is a demonic business. It's a bloody business. And that's why it's a sham to call that whole philosophy pro-choice. Because pro-choice is a deceitful euphemism to hide the dark reality, hide the dark reality of what abortion really is. It's not about choice. Think about this. If someone broke into your home, took the youngest member of your family, held a knife to their neck, and said, shall I kill them? You would not say to them, that's your choice. You would say, that would be murder. It would be very very clear. Jesus said that we are to be the salt and that we are to be the light of the world. Let's take our Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 5 again this week. And the same verses we did last week, we want to make application to this issue of our time. Jesus himself said we're the salt of the earth. If we lose our effectiveness, then we're, we don't have any value but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Christian people, followers of Jesus, are to have the influence in society to keep evil less, to make evil less and less. And then in verse 14 it says, you're the light of the world. And the question that kind of, to me, begs to be answered today, and it leads to the title of my message is, if abortion is such a dark business, and clearly it is, and we're to be the light of the world, then what should Christian people do about abortion What should we do about abortion? That's my message today. What to do about abortion? Understand, abortion is a dark business. Understand, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. As an application of what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, how should we see abortion? Skip forward, and we'll come to this text in a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. 
But skip forward and notice that Jesus is going to talk about murder. And everybody agrees murder is wrong here. In his audience, everybody agrees murder is wrong. And he's not trying to convince people that murder is wrong in his argument. His audience, people are assuming that murder is wrong. But he goes beyond murder and he says that there are other sins that are like murder that make a person guilty before God. And this is what he says in verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. It's important for us to understand People will often say, unbelievers usually say this, uninformed Christians say all sins are alike. They are not alike. I mean, put, write that one down. Get that in your book. Because I hear Christian people say that all the time. All sins are alike. No, they're not all alike. They're not all alike. If you steal a postage stamp from your work, it doesn't belong to you. It is a sin. But you and I both know that is not as grave or horrifying of a sin as taking of a human life. Would you agree? All sins are not alike and equal. All sins are equal in the sense that they're enough to send a person to hell. That's what Jesus is saying here. So you say, well, I never murdered anybody. Okay, did you ever say, you fool? Yes, okay, then you've sinned enough to go to hell. What are you going to do now? That's the idea. And this drives us to Calvary. This drives us to the cross. This gives us an appetite, a hunger, a thirst for the gospel to understand that. But all sins are not equal or alike. All sins were equally able to take away our sinless perfection and make us make us in need of God's mercy. In that sense, yes, that's true. Understand what Jesus is saying here is this. Just because you haven't killed somebody doesn't mean that you don't act in disregard to human beings. Just because you haven't killed somebody, can I ask you, have you ever called people mean names? Jesus is saying, I don't want you calling people bad names. Jesus is saying, according to the law of God, I don't want you to disregard people. I don't want you to treat people with contempt. To treat people, human beings, with contempt in any way, like calling them, you fool, is to be in danger of hellfire. Just take as an application of Jesus' teaching now, how would we apply that teaching about murder and anger and calling people names and disregard for human beings, how would we apply that truth to this matter of the murder of the unborn? To this matter of abortion, how would we apply that? Right-thinking people whose minds are not distorted by worldly philosophies would not have trouble understanding the answer to that question. That's a very simple thing. If Jesus says, don't cut people off in traffic and call them names, then I would say ending their life before they were born would be included as a very clear and obvious application of this truth. Am I right? That's what Jesus, in other words, Jesus taught that this was a, a great sin. It's a great darkness. And Jesus said, we're the light of the world. So how then should Christians be salt and light against the darkness of abortion? Before we go on, I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 1. And this is a light and darkness passage. And I want you to see something here that I think is really important. It's not, it's not unimportant that Christians have a prophetic voice and they say what's right. But often we will kind of be shrill and we will be, we'll kind of beat the drum but we are not ready to supply the light. In other words, we're, we're ready to yell at people, you're dark, you're dark, you're dark, but we're not ready to go, and here's what the light looks like. And I think in Ephesians chapter 1, what you see is the way that we expose the works of darkness, you can't do it without light. In other words, 
If we really want to expose what we see as a dark business of abortion, we've got to show them what the light looks like. That's the best way. We can't expect them to understand because they're captives of the enemy. They're not going to understand unless we show them the light and the the Spirit empowers the light that we show them. And I think that's what Ephesians chapter 5 is saying. Therefore, be imitators of God. Walk as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also loved us as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which, is, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator nor unclean person, nor a covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things are exposed, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So it's not just the idea that we see something wrong and then we shout kind of shrill, you know, ugly words at other people and condemn them. There is a place for prophetic voice, and we'll talk about that, but there has to be the opposite of darkness is light. We need to show them then what does it look like when people adore children. What does it look like when people value children? What does it look like when people consider children a blessing from God? That's the, that when people are in darkness and for their own personal convenience or because of their own fear or the difficulties or circumstances that have come into their life and their lack of conviction about the sovereignty of God cut off children, then there should be a group of people somewhere that say, no, this is what God intended. This is the love and the cherishing and the valuing and the, uh, of children that God intended among His people. In other words, how can Christians be a light in this area of, uh, against this area of, the, of abortion. And I want to suggest some ways, you could come up with others, just on my heart today, are some ways that we can expose the works of darkness. First, uh, I'm going to give you six of them, unless I think up others while I'm talking. One, demonstrate sincere selfless love for children. Demonstrate sincere selfless love for children. See children as a blessing, not as a burden. Don't talk about children like they're a burden. Uh, know the heart of God for children. The Bible doesn't talk about children like that. The children of the righteous are as a blessing in the Bible. I've written an article on God's view of children. It's a kind of extensive article, and I will post it today on the church's website. And uh, this afternoon I'll post it on my site, and I'll link to it. And uh, I'll link to it from the church website to my site, and I will post it on Facebook, and I will uh, send... Uh, uh, I, I'll put it on Twitter, and I'll put uh, copies next week in the, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, foyer. And I'd like for you each to read this article, along with the article I have embedded in it, a, a chapter from a book I read when I was in high school by John R. Rice called uh, uh, The Bible's View of Children. 
And I would challenge you as Christians, instead of just looking across into the darkness at people who have aborted children or who don't understand the truth of the matter, look at your own attitude toward children. And as a church, as we rise up with this Christ-like attitude about children, can you imagine with me if you had like a wealthy aunt, let's say that she was worth, say, like $8 million, and she called you over for tea. Would you come? Of course you would, swiftly. You would cancel the playoffs to go over to her house and have tea. And so she has you come over there, and she's got a little cheery fire on the hearth and a bit of tea, and you sit down with her, and she says, you know you are my favorite fill-in-the-blank niece, nephew, depending on your gender, because I want you to enjoy being in this story yourself, right? You're my favorite, and I don't have any children of my own, and I have a great deal of wealth, and I really don't know what to do with it. And I've decided that I'm going to leave my $8 million estate to you. But she said, I got to thinking about that the other day, and it occurred to me that it would be a lot more fun for me to leave my $8 million estate to you if, if I was still alive to watch you enjoy it. So if you agree, I'm going to sign over my $8 million to you. As long as you take care of me, I'm going to sign over my $8 million to you. Now, if you were that niece or nephew, how long would it take you to tell her, Yes, milliseconds, faster than it takes somebody to beep the horn in Chicago traffic when you're stopped and you're supposed to go, right? I mean, you would say yes, because she has this $8 million wealth. Lois and I have four sons and four daughters, eight children. If you could, and probably you could, couldn't if you were to offer me a million dollars for any one of them i would ask answer without any hesitation no and it wouldn't matter how much more you gave me they're worth more than eight million dollars to lois and to me you understand that you understand that you have you have children or you you understand the the value of a child is inestimable and that's what the bible teaches but do, do we see children like that? That's really where we really want to begin. Demonstrate a sincere and selfless love for children. I, I want to be a little bit more direct. Don't be influenced or corrupted by the godless philosophies in this world. They're demonic, they're dark, they're deadly, and they lead to things ultimately like abortion. Read through your Bible with an open heart. Notice what God says about the children of the righteous. In other words... If God allows you to, have a large family and devote yourself to raising them for the Lord. If God allows you to, have a large family and devote yourself to raising them for the Lord. I challenge you to read your Bible and see that's the pattern in the Bible. Everybody can't have a large family, but if you can, I would challenge you to do that. Second thing, did you guys get that down? Good. Second thing, fast and pray for the unborn. Fast and pray for the unborn. Repent of the spiritual atmosphere of selfishness, which is uh, such a dark, depraved, in, in which such a dark and depraved industry could thrive. In other words, because of, the, because of the sin of covetousness among even believing people who are living for money and things and acquisition and comforts and making sure that we have enough money for retirement and, and, and can I make sure that I have enough money for all the luxuries that I want to lavish upon my children and kind of like calculating all of that, the atmosphere has been set for people to, for unbelieving, unregenerate people to go 
to the natural to take the natural uh, result of that and say, well, if we don't, if we want, want children, let's just kill them before they're born. This is an atmosphere that we are partially responsible for, God's people. It is an atmosphere that we're partially responsible for, so we should repent, fast, and pray because of this atmosphere of selfishness in which such a dark and depraved industry can flourish. Third, um, third, speak out boldly against the murder of the unborn. This you should do. Now I know some of you think, well, wait a minute. If I have a prophetic voice, then how am I going to be a testimony? Like if I'm at work and people don't get that, I'm trying to witness to people, and I say that abortion is wrong, aren't they just going to write me off as some kind of right-wing freak, fanatic, and they're not going to listen to the gospel? I don't think so, and here's why. It's like if they're alienated from God and they hate the things of God and they hate the life of God, then they might write you off, and that's not because you, you spoke the law of God. But you understand, if anything is going to make a person's heart tender and open and willing to receive the gospel, it's going to be that their heart is tenderized by a, a consistent application of God's law. So who's going to tell them it is murder to kill a baby? It's our job to say those things. It's our job to speak the truth about those things. You say, well, in our, in, our, uh, in our land, it's actually legal to kill a baby like that before it's born. It's, in some cases, not legal to talk against it in certain places. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, where is our freedom of choice, I would ask? Speak out boldly against the murder of the unborn. Be a prophetic voice. Don't worry about offending unbelievers. Don't be offensive. Be loving. Be kind. Be gracious. Be courteous. Be sensitive that the people that you're talking to, this may hit very close to home for them. So you don't want to be insensitive or ugly, unnecessarily ugly about that. There's no, there's no value in that. But don't be afraid to teach the law of God to unbelieving people. One of the reasons that so many people aren't saved is not because they haven't heard the salient points of the gospel. It's because the salient points of the gospel don't mean anything to them because their heart hasn't been prepared by the law of God. When their hearts are really prepared by the law of God and they understand how they violated the law of a holy God, then the gospel sounds very wonderful to them and it tastes very sweet to them. So speak out boldly. Did you get it? Demonstrate sincere uh, and selfless love for children. If you can have a large family, do it. If you can't, help other people that do. Their are families even in our church with, with, with children and uh, they, they trust the Lord for that. Maybe you couldn't have a large family. You can be a help to them and be an encouragement to them. It's a good thing to do. Fast and pray for the unborn. Speak out boldly against the murder of the unborn. This one is an obvious one, and that is support a a crisis pregnancy center, if you know of one. Do any of you know of a a crisis pregnancy center? Yeah, that was a joke, yeah. Um, Support a, a crisis pregnancy center. This is why I would like to see us, like, whatever the diaper number is, just double it over the next couple of weeks and not stop today. And I'm saying this for a very important reason, because we look at the budget, and the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge has a chunk of the budget, but it's not really going up. They've taken a few cuts, and it's not really going up, and yet the ministry is going. It's still going. It's going quite well, and lots of people are being serviced by it. There are file cabinets of hundreds of files of closed cases of people who have been counseled by the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge. All of the workers in the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge are trained in evangelism explosion, and people appreciate this ministry. They like it. Men and women alike are part of it. There's an enormous amount of labor, effort, and devotion in this ministry in our church. It's really an incredible thing to see. I actually sat down with Linda Linden to ask her what makes her tick. And I asked her to tell me a little bit about 
her story. And we have this wonderful ministry here. A number of years ago, a girl came to the church office and she was pregnant. It was an unwanted uh, surprise pregnancy to her. She asked for some help and nobody really knew exactly what to do. Pastor Discerns has been involved in this from the, from the very beginning. And, and uh, a woman named Peggy Gabriel, who some of you knew and I've never met, an angelic name, interestingly enough, um, she was involved in a crisis pregnancy center elsewhere. She wanted to help in one where she could be more overt with the gospel. And even though she wasn't in good health herself, she was used of the Lord in the early days. Baptist uh, uh, for Life came and did a seminar here and did some training. And you folks... Uh, out of obedience to the Lord, and a handful of folk began to meet in a very lonely way at the beginning of this, and very few people came for any help at all. And the women would come, and they would sit, and they would pray, and they would make themselves available, but the clients weren't there. After a while, they made themselves available to state agencies, and state agencies actually, do you understand, refer continuously people to Evangel Baptist Church and the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge because they uh, know that we're going to help people with the basic needs that they have. In other words, we don't just say in our church, this isn't me, this is something you were doing long before I was here. But in this church, it's not just that we say, we think you should have babies. We say, and if you do, we'll help you with them. We'll help you with your diapers. We'll help you with your feeding. We'll help you with a layout. We'll help you with a crib. We'll give you some teaching and some support and give you some training about what do you do now that you have a baby and how do you handle your finances and things like that. This is happening continuously in our church and one of the best things that you and I can do in order to support, uh, to really to kind of be salt and light about this whole dark matter of abortion is to continue to support the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge. Now Linda went to Florida and she was working with Peggy and Peggy had some serious physical difficulties and Linda volunteered to help her. During this time, Linda was involved in, in real estate and she felt like kind of tug on her heart. She'd been helping a little bit in the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge and she felt a tug on her heart that God wanted her to do something like devote herself and her time more fully to Christian ministry. Uh, at this time, she and Tim took a, she had a, uh, they had a vacation went to Florida for 10 days. She told me she wasn't sure what she was going to do after the first, you know, day or two. So she took a book about, uh, a biographical book on Joseph by Charles Swindoll along with her. God gave them beautiful weather and she said she sat out on the porch and she watched the ocean and watched the dolphins play in the ocean and felt the warm breeze. And she said she felt like she met with God, like God met with her there. She consumed this book and just read this book. When she came home, it wasn't long, you know, before Peggy went to be with the Lord. And then Linda stepped up, and you will notice, and I know she doesn't want to, to be glorified, and this is not the point. She's continuously here working on this. And as I drive up and I see her car here over and over again, I think to myself, what would motivate a person to be so devoted, and the rest of you, so devoted to this ministry? And the answer is what Linda said when she was in Florida. She had a tug on her heart by the Lord, and God was with her and speaking to her, and she's not obeying man but God in her involvement. And I know many others that are involved in the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge are doing it because they feel like there's a tug on their heart from God to do something, to be a light in this dark culture. So I commend them for that. And I would just challenge you, don't let me or anybody else burden you or badger you or guilt manipulate you into being involved in anything. But let your heart be tender. And if the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, then do what he tells you to do. And it might be that what he tells you to do is get a couple packages of diapers. First time the store opens tomorrow morning, get a couple, bring it by the church. We'll be happy to receive those because this is a huge chunk of their budget. Simply giving away diapers is such a help to young mothers. 
that are learning other things. It's a huge chunk of their budget. Now, just a pastor, I'll just tell you, you understand we baptize people that come through the doors because of this ministry. We see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. There are people in this community, I know, I've looked them in the eye. Their kids have gone to our camps. They've been in our youth programs. They have heard the gospel. They have been loved by our people. And, and we don't know what happens if somebody walks away from our church, but we do know we did what we could do. We ministered to them. We told them the truth. We gave them light. And so this is just a very powerful, wonderful way for you to give the light. There is one way that's even better than any of those other things. It's more, it's, it's more significant than any of those other things. It's this simple. And it is our stock and trade at Evangel Baptist Church. And that is the gospel. Giving the gospel to people. Leading other people to Christ. You can't expect unregenerate people to understand what I've been talking about today. They're in the dark. They've, been, they've listened to false philosophies and lies. The devil has them kind of hooked and he's reeling them in. So they don't understand those kinds of things. You can't understand, you can't expect people who aren't real, true, Bible-driven, godly statesmen politicians to vote right about things like this because they've not been really reading their Bible. Some people who are astute at world politics, you listen to them when they start talking about the Bible, they don't know the Bible. They don't even know what people think, what, what people claim to be true about the Bible. And I'm not going to be unkind. I'm, because I I, I don't have an unkind feeling in my soul about imagine what it would be like to be the President of the United States and have the responsibility of like the past two Presidents of the United States, for instance. I personally don't have, I'm just telling you, I don't have a lot of confidence that just because this person says I'm pro-life and this person says I'm not pro-life, that either one of them are going to be people that are going to act with biblical principled character because I'm not sure it's about God to them. It is about God. It is about the murder of the unborn. People who get involved in that, all of them are guilty before God and will one day stand with blood on their hands and answer to God for what they've done. And this would include all of us, not just those that, but those with leadership. This is very important. Now, a final question I want to get to before I quit is, what should you do if you have shed innocent blood? Or what if you have been a part of this in any way? And none of us are really probably with, totally without guilt here. Don't deny or excuse yourself when it comes to sin of any kind. There is forgiveness, but not without honest confession. Do we not all have some measure of guilt? Think about this. What should you do if, if you've called a blessing what God calls a curse, or you've called a curse what God calls a blessing? You should repent. What if you cut off children for selfish reasons, or what if you deceived by the philosophies of our self-worshipping materialistic culture? See it as it is. Say it as it is. This is the only way to moral and spiritual freedom ever. The only way to full forgiveness and the only way to emotional restoration is repentance, is seeing things the way God says they are. Denial, argument will never silence our conscience, will never remove our guiltiness before God. If at last you sear your conscience into silence, your soul will still be hardened against God and against the truth, but you, you will still be guilty before a holy God and you will stand one day before God with blood on your hands. In Japan, a whole industry has sprung up around the abortion industry for women who have had their babies aborted and they can't escape the guilt that follows them. The, these little temples will sell them uh, memorials for a significant amount of money so that they can pray because of their extreme guilt about having their baby killed. 
So millions languish in emotional, spiritual pain, and they can't get over the guilt and the shame or the remorse of aborting their child. So in temples, they're sold these statues. They're encouraged to pray and stay true to their Buddhism to ensure the state of their aborted child. Abortion advocates in our country think that churches should be involved in this. They think that what we should have is some way for, to help women who have had abortions uh, get away from the, the... You understand, these are people that are advocates of abortion, know that women have repercussions in their soul and their spirit afterward, and they're suggesting, they're telling us now as the church what to do, that we should have some way of them coming so that they can be forgiven. Well, there certainly is a way that they can be forgiven, but it's not going to be what the abortion advocates suggest. It's going to be repentance and coming to the righteousness of Christ. None of the loud, arrogant, blasphemous, pro-death arguments can drown out the pitiful, wailing lament that continually boils up out of the tortured conscience of many who've had their child aborted. In the eyes of God, they've arranged for and paid for the murder of their own child. They've not protected what God has given mothers, a profound instinct to protect the little life growing next to their heart. It is a dark, shameful business There's no way out from underneath the crushing weight of it. There's no way out but the way of the cross. There's no way out but the way of Calvary, the blessed, sweet way of Calvary, the way of the gospel. The sinless Christ takes upon himself our darkest and most shameful sin. Men and women involved in this. Our darkest and most shameful sin, our selfishness. Don't kid yourself. In our culture today, there is an epidemic of selfishness among young males who will take what they want and they will leave young women with child or with a broken conscience or a destroyed life and those men stand guilty before God. Some of you, you may be here today, that may be true of you. And it would be good before you completely make shipwreck of your life just to be honest with God and honest with the people that you've harmed and seek forgiveness. There is forgiveness, but there's no forgiveness outside of Calvary. And so the sinless Christ, think about this, he takes upon himself our darkest and most shameful sin. Christ does. He credits us before God with his perfect righteousness. By grace, the guilt then and the shame is lifted from our soul. And the guilt is gone. The guiltiness is gone. And then we have like the prophetic reference to Jesus in Isaiah 61. When people turn to Christ and repentance, here's what happens. And this is all listed in Isaiah 61. He heals the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty to those who were captives of sin and guilt. He comforts those who mourn. He gives them the oil of joy for their mourning. And he, around their shoulders he drapes a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And then they become established, the planting of the Lord, the Bible says. And God is glorified. That's what Isaiah 61 says. God is glorified in them when the old ruins of sin that have been a desolation and a reproach to God, they're built up or they're repaired or they're restored to gleaming glory once again. This can be true about you. You too because of your own fear or because of your selfishness or because of your desire for comfort or convenience or because of your desire to avoid embarrassment may have taken life into your own hands. You may have broken the law of God. You may have refused gifts that he would normally give you. You can be forgiven and you can be restored. You can be saved. If you're not saved, you can be right with God. But it won't happen until the lights come on. 
won't happen until you admit your sin and you see things the way God sees them and you say things the way God says, says them. And our prayer here is that you would be strengthened by God, the Holy Spirit, to trust him, to obey him, to follow him in every way.